Welcome to Our Tribe, the podcast that sits down with Jewish professionals and entrepreneurs to hear their stories, share their advice, and bear their Jewish souls. Now here's your host, Rabbi Tovia Kopsty. Welcome back to Our Tribe, the podcast. Tuvia Kopstein here, and in this episode, we get to sit down with Jason Bass. Jason is the Vice President of Innovation and User Experience at Wiley, which is a huge publishing corporation that is all over the world and an innovative leader in kind of regenerate, remaking the whole publishing world as the world changes. There's a lot of interesting things to say about that world, but even more interesting is that Jason came from a yeshiva background, kind of stumbled into a career, found his strengths while going from place to place in his career, and now uses the experience that he gained personally from that rough and tumble kind of start to help other people who are in the yeshiva world transitioning into the corporate world to make that transition smoothly, to understand the sensitivities that they need to understand, to understand their own strengths. And that's when the conversation, for me, really got interesting. And we hope you enjoy this podcast. I think you will. You'll learn a lot, as I did with Jason Bass. Okay, here we are with Jason Bass in Chicago. Welcome, Jason. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Great to be here. Okay, thank you for joining us. And Jason is, Jason, you are, I understand you are the group vice president of innovation and user experience at Wiley. What do you do? What is, what is the Wiley? What, is, what does Wiley do for the world? Wiley is a publishing company and they manage the end-to-end uh, publishing uh, services for academic societies and journals. And they, they publish on behalf of uh, these societies and journals, about 2,000 uh, journals. Uh, managing the end-to-end process from you know, the editorial process and getting the journal published, the peer-reviewed process, to getting the journal reviewed by experts, to publishing that, getting it, to making it available to universities for students to search on, and then providing also services to societies and and journals to help them increase their membership and, and recruitment um, as well. So it's a, a, a very large company. We do about $2 billion a year, and they're based in Hoboken, New Jersey. See, and they have. I guess you can work remotely, or there's an office, a center in Chicago. There is uh, the main office is in Hoboken. We have offices all all around the world. Um, most of my team, including myself, work remotely. I'm based in Chicago. I have uh, a team in California, in New Jersey, of course, at the headquarters, um, in uh, all all over uh, in Europe as well, and also in Athens, Greece. Okay. So is, you say that, that Wiley manages o- o- about 2,000 different journals. Is that, is that the bulk of, is that a majority of the academic journals that are out there in the world, or is that just a small fraction? It, it's, a, it's a very large portion of the journals. Uh-huh. I'm not sure exactly the percentage, but it's a very large, it's a significant portion of the industry. Um, there are lots of competitors in the market, lots of publishing services. Uh, but Wiley is different in that they manage uh, way more than just the publishing end of the of the of the service that they provide, uh, including recruitment and membership and conferencing services as well. So it's it's larger than that. They also have a textbook arm where they publish textbooks for universities as well. Mm-hmm. They have a big educational division. Uh, you may be familiar also with the Four Dummies series, uh, Excel for Dummies, and so on. That's published by Wiley. Oh. We publish a lot of other types of. Uh, professional development 
books as well. So they're a book publisher, they're an academic journals publisher, and they provide services uh, for in the publishing industry in general. Okay, very good. So I'd love to I'd love to go more into that, but I just want to cover just at the beginning. I want to want to make uh, the the umbrella of all the things you do and all the things you've done. I, I know that um, J- Jason, you've also done uh, ten years before Wiley, ten years prior. You are um, you were working at Amazon in a product development and innovation role, so I'd, we'd love to talk about that. And also, um, we'll get to the fact that you are a, a volunteer mentor for religious Jewish students are moving moving into the corporate world, helping them, coaching them, and and advising them in general about how to make the transition from the where they're transitioning from, wherever that might be, into the corporate world, which is a slightly but slightly different. So I'd love to talk about that because that's very interesting, uh, very interesting exploration. So before before we get started about the details, tell us your story. How'd you get to so, where you are today? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm. You know, I arrived in America. I'm from England. I arrived in America in 1994, not knowing what to do with myself and where to work, and found uh, found myself at uh, as a salesperson at New York Carpet World. You know, because I knew someone who knew someone who knew someone that helped me get an interview and a job. And because I had an accent, they said, oh, you'd be great in sales. Um, So I started out my career actually in sales, didn't know what I was doing, very young, 20 years old, and trying to figure out how to survive in this world and support the family. And from there, you know, I, I kind of fell into different roles. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. It just more by happenstance, uh, you know, uh, someone said, hey, how about, would you think about doing this kind of job or that kind of job? And I was like, sure, I'll do that. I mean, make an extra couple thousand dollars a year. That sounds like a good plan. And I kind of fell into these roles. I got lots of experience. And looking back, I can see how each one of those roles, through Hashkaka practice or, you know, divine providence, right? It really helped build up my skill set to uh, refining myself into something that I was more targeted. You know, in the beginning, it was very much like, falling into or, you know, because of, you know, connections, I got, I got a job. And there was, uh, you know, I was work at some point I was working at a light bulb distributing company based out of Detroit. And um, I was given the opportunity to train. Uh, I had a knack for explaining how to train computer systems to people that were non-technical and uh, had the opportunity to begin training lots of people within the company, everything from different departments, accounts payable, accounts receivable, even the warehouse, purchasing. And I got a picture of, you know, the end-to-end business workflow, what it means to buy something, to sell something, to store something, uh, to provide services all around the, you know, the sale and how that, how that came about. And it really opened up my eyes to the full business process. But I really enjoyed, I found that I had a passion for training. So I decided I was going to take my career and apply for my own job instead of just through connections, apply for my own job as a trainer. And I put together a resume uh, around, uh, you know, training about, you know, focus on training. And I looked for training jobs and I found a training job at a publishing company, training salespeople on how to use their con- contact management system to keep track of their comments and to use it to sell better uh, and so on. And that's how I got into the publishing industry. And from there, my career grew, my, you know, building relationships with sales teams, getting even better at sales, um, understanding business development relationships. Then I became an, a salesperson again. Then I, that led into 
because of my expertise in listening and understanding what customers want led me into a career in product management where um, it's really about listening to what the customers need and translating them to a product team, a technical team to build what the customers want. And uh, so in the publishing industry, I ended up becoming the publisher of the of a journals uh, product, a journals database, and an ebook product. And then, uh, you know, I was looking for another job, also targeted and trying to become a better product manager. And I got recruited by Amazon to work on Kindle uh-huh. uh, because of my background in publishing and background in ebooks. Uh, I got a job at Amazon. And uh, then my career took off even further. And uh, one thing led to another, and I got uh, you know various different roles within Amazon. I was able to grow my career from the ground up, basically. And uh, and when I left Amazon, I was managing a innovation team for Amazon Web Services that had innovation hubs all over the world, and I was running the um, the North American division. We had four innovation hubs uh, helping cities and local governments uh, all across America and Canada innovate the same way that Amazon does. So what is that? Most people are familiar with Amazon just as a, a shopping service. So what, please explain, what is, what is the innovation hub? What are you, what are you accomplishing? What are you, what a, Amazon realized after a while that they had really perfected the art of um, defining a product that was successful. And they have a very specific way that they build products focused on the customer. And uh, similar to how Amazon Web Services was created, I'm not sure if you're familiar, but Amazon had a challenge that they had to support their entire infrastructure with computers um, in a much more efficient way. They developed their own cloud infrastructure that would support Amazon.com and Kindle and all of the other businesses that Amazon created. And Amazon realized, wait a second, if we have this problem, most likely other companies have this problem too. So why don't we rent out space in our cloud service centers to other customers and help them with their computing power and, 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 and their data centers? And that's how AWS was born. And so they, they started sharing how their successes with other customers and charging for it. And now they're the largest cloud provider in the world and the biggest money maker for, for Amazon. Hmm. So in that same vein, they decided that they would begin sharing the way that they built products with customers to help customers understand the innovation process. And hopefully those customers would end up building things on AWS because that's how they would make money from sharing this process. So they opened up these innovation hubs that would enable them to share their innovation processes with customers. So customers could say, I've got this problem. How would you help solve it? How would you solve it using an Amazon, the Amazon way? And then we would walk them through what that process looks like, um, provide them with some coaching along the way using the framework of innovation. And then we would, um, you know, provide them with a scope of work that they could then go build their product. Great. I had no idea this was happening. <laughs> Very good. Okay, so from, from Amazon, what, what was the, the move that brought you to Wiley? So, you know, after 10 years at Amazon, I felt like I wanted to give back to the publishing industry. And I felt like the same services that I have been working on, same skill sets that I've been perfecting over the course of the last 20 years, 
I could come back into the publishing industry and really have an impact and solve some problems there. And Wiley was looking for a, a person to kind of spearhead some of the innovation work that they're doing and coming up with new ways to serve the publishing industry, new business models. Um, and so, uh, you know, through my connections and, and relationships that I built over the years, I was approached to see if I would be interested. So, uh, seemed like the right time to make a move after my, you know, strong career at Amazon. And this was going to help me go to my, the next stage in my career. And, uh, and so here I am. Fascinating. Thank you. Okay. So tell me, what are some of these new products, these new business models that are coming to the, to the world of publishing that you're, that you're helping to develop? Yeah, the, 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 the range, we're still, you know, I've been at Wiley since, uh, December of last year, so we're just oh. getting started. Okay. Um, but there are lots of innovations that could take place with helping early career scientists find, find jobs outside of academia and figuring out ways to, to highlight people with different career options to, to go that way. That's a service that we provide as well. There's a, um, a change in the industry, uh, called open access where, uh, while Previously, a lot of content that was published sat behind a paywall that you can only access through libraries or through your university subscriptions. There's a movement now to uh, of open access to to have all, to have more journals published uh, with free content available to everybody. So there's a shift in business models to help to um, you know create more uh, you know the the flow of information out into the public in a more seamless way and a more available way as well. Similar to, um, you know, how uh, in the in the music industry, we went from CDs to online to streaming services. It's a similar kind of concept here in publishing. So there's lots of new business models that need to be created to uh, keep companies afloat, right? Because how, how a publishing company is going to make money if they can't charge it for, if they can't charge for their product. So lots of new business models that have to be created around that. And along with that, there are different ways that authors need to get paid and royalties and publishers need to get paid. So the infrastructure that supports that needs new technologies to support that as well. So my role is to helping the team come up with new ideas, new ideas to create new business models and also to support the, the change in the industry with our existing infra- technology infrastructure to be able to, to support these changes as well. Oh, okay, this is so interesting. I, I, I can't imagine. What could you, what could you do to, if you want to make all this information open and free, how could, uh, how could royalties be paid? Let's start with that. Yeah, well, uh, that's a, that's a much more in-depth conversation. I think that we have time for today <laughs> okay. deep into the publishing industry. Um, and some of which I won't be able to share either uh-huh. proprietary information. Um, but I, I can say that there's lots of different new ways that we're exploring similar to how people pay for videos now or music now mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that could be explored to, to, per, to keep the industry afloat. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I see. um, Okay, very good. So without we'll that's another uh you know, another path to travel for when we have more time. Um let, let me let me ask you like this in terms of in terms of your career as as a whole up until this point, what do you think is the biggest challenge that you had and looking back at the entire at your entire career? What 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 were the things you had to overcome in order to be successful? Um it's a really good question. It probably boils down to confidence. 
you know, when you grow up, uh, if you grow up in a in a situation where you go to yeshiva and you spend four or five years in yeshiva and you're trying to figure out how to survive in the in the world and you don't get a job with your father-in-law in real estate or, you know, and you don't really have those options. Um, typically at that point in time, a lot of people are married, may have a child already, and they're kind of looking for that opportunity to try to figure out what they can do next and they fall into some kind of job. Yep. Um, We're talking about post-high school yeshiva? Yeah, post high school oh, yeshiva, okay. yeshiva. So four Dola. or five years. Okay. Yeah, you're about 23 years old, probably. You know, mm-hmm. after you've spent a couple of years in yeshiva, you're probably married. You know, in that kind of situation, and you probably get a job, and uh, it's a modest job. Uh, you know, maybe make fifty to seventy-five thousand dollars a year, and enough just to kind of get by with a one child, depending on the location that you live in. You know, the cost of living. Maybe you're making a little bit more, but it's just. You're not really there yet. And it's the confidence to say, what? I don't have an education like everyone else over here. I don't, I never went to college, right? I never went to university. I don't have the skill set. And, you know, I'm not good enough to go do X, Y, or Z. I'm not, I don't have the skills to do, you know, to do something that's going to make me, you know, really put me in a position where I can support my family, but not just support my family, but save. You know, put me in a position where I can give more tzedakah than just eighteen dollars, um, and 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 it's having the confidence to to understand that you do have a lot of skills, you're just not marketing them in the right way. You can write a resume that will get you into another job, and that you can excel um, with the right kind of discipline and with the right drive, and you don't have to float between, you know these jobs that you just find in happenstance. It's more the confidence that you can do it. Once you have the confidence that you can do it and that you do have the skill set, then it's actually doing it. And, and, and then it's trying to figure out what's my passion? What am I really good at? And then, and then going down the path that way and, then, and targeting those kinds of jobs that you will enjoy doing and that you, will, uh, that you can be successful at. It's really identifying once you have the confidence where your where your passion lies. It took me at least five years to figure out that I was really good at training. Uh, and really what that was, it was more about listening and interpreting and translating needs from one type of person to a different type of person. Um, and that's what training is about, is translating, right, the information over to uh, to someone that may come from a different background uh, or just have different experiences. And it took me a long time to figure out that that's where my uh, my passion was, or that's what I was really good at. And so once I found that, I was able to hone in on those skills, perfect them even more, and then target them into different roles. I went from a training role to a sales role to a product development role, but my core, the way that I presented myself in an interview, was all centered around that skill set. Mm-hmm. And that helped me get each one of those jobs that are very different kinds of jobs. So I think it's understanding what those skill sets are and having the confidence to talk about them in a way that's going to help you get that second or third job. Did you, do you wish that you had some kind of mentor early on in your career who could help tell you that you have those skill sets and you wouldn't have to go through the process? Or are you happy that you, you uh, went through it organically? Absolutely. I, I wish I would have had someone to guide me through it. I think I would have been able to do it a lot faster if I had some guidance. 
I'm, I'm glad that I did it the way I did it because, you know, through grit and disappointments and challenges and successes, you know, it also helped me to develop a thick skin and, and to, to really focus. And I did get a mentor probably 15, uh, 15 years or so way into my career. And that mentor helped me uh, really get the job at Amazon and, and, and take my career in, in kind of hockey stick growth. Um, without him, I wouldn't have been able to do that without that guidance, because going back to that confidence thing that I spoke about earlier. So I wish I would have had a mentor early on. And, you know, you, you typically take guidance from around your community. And sometimes your community is limited. So you might be in a community which limited with folks that are experts in real estate or the medical field. Right. So you might be surrounded by people in your school or your community that are doctors and nurses or, you know, in, in that field or, you know, that they have uh, a law degree and that they have or they have they're in business and real estate and so on. And sometimes those are limited in where you can actually find a mentor from in different industries um, because they're focused just on those topics. So it limits your career options. There's hundreds of career options that are out there. And so taking a step back and finding a mentor that has a broad set or broader understanding of the world and different careers that you can take, I think is also really important. Um, in, in one of the uh, conversations that I've been having with customers in my industry that I'm working with now, it's, it's a very similar topic. We have a, a scientist that has a PhD and has been focused on their PhD for the last 15 years in their education. And they're surrounded by the academic community. And everyone in the academic community is focused on academia. And, you know, oh, if you're getting a PhD, then you must go into the tenure track. But only one third of people that are going through the PhD process get a job in academia. The other two thirds, that's a huge percentage, need to find a job elsewhere because they just don't make it. They won't make it. There aren't, there aren't enough jobs there. So they have to find jobs in finance and and, and, and or publishing or, or business development or other or, or in other ways. And but that's where they spent their career and their community is all centered around academia. So how do they find mentors and guidance outside of that to, uh, to identify them with different career options? It's a very similar uh, challenge that I think that we have in the Jewish community, especially in the Orthodox community, because there aren't that many that have a wide variety of career uh options available okay very interesting so let's 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 segue from this i know it's a, a big topic also but uh, something you've taken on as a as a personal passion is helping people coming from the yeshiva post post high school yeshiva world and transitioning into the corporate world and you help them with understanding the sensitivities of the corporate world and and how to blend the sensitivities their their own religious sensibilities with, with uh, what's happening in the corporate world. So can you tell me, let, I'm sure that many of our listeners are, are, tr- are trying to figure out like, what, is, what are these things? What is, as somebody who comes from a yeshiva background, what does he, have to, he or she have to adjust to when it comes into entering the corporate world? Yeah, there's, there's a lot. You know, in the yeshiva world, many times, uh, to be stereotypical for a moment, it's a very sheltered world. And so you might speak yeshivish and come into an interview and say things like, yeah, Vada, I can do that. You can't, you can't say that in an interview. 
Um, but that's just the way that people speak and it, it doesn't translate. So you have to you have to be able to figure out how to translate your, you know, your culture into getting a job without compromising your culture. And so, uh, you know, I've seen so many people spoken to so many uh, folks who reached out to me when I was working at Amazon. I, well, if you can work at Amazon, then I can work at Amazon kind of a thing. Um, I could. And I say, okay, well, what can you do? Anything you need. If you need me to file, I can file. You know, I can, it doesn't work like that. So it's it's having the ability to train or to teach somebody how to act as a professional, right? When you when you haven't had that experience, and it's no fault of their own, um, you just haven't been surrounded by people like that. You don't have that experience. You can't just say, sure, I can do whatever you need. I'm a smart guy. I learned Gamara for four years. Uh, of course I can do that, you know. Um, okay, well, how are you going to present yourself in that way? So the first step is learning on how to present yourself in an interview and translate your skills that you have as learning Gemara into how that's going to apply into uh, the job that you're getting, the skills and the jobs that you may have had, the odd jobs or the summer jobs or the you know, that you may have had before and translating that to get your first corporate job. And then you have to come across, you know, explaining to someone what Shabbos and Yom Tov is and that why you can't work on Shabbos and Yom Tov and not taking for granted that that sounds weird to someone. And that, you know, how to position and not to be too entitled to say, you know, well, I'm going to leave at one o'clock on Friday afternoon because I've got to go, you know, help my wife make Shabbos. Well, yeah, you can't say it that way. Right. And Shabbos starts at seven. You know, you can't say that you need to leave at one or two just because you've done that for the for, for the last 15, 20 years in your life. You have to make compromises as to when you can be home on Friday afternoon. You have to explain to your potential boss why that's important to you, but you that you would make up that time in elsewhere, maybe on a Sunday or maybe stay extra hours during the week. Right? You have to realize that you can't be so entitled to say, well, I have Rosh Hashanah. So I'm not coming into work for, for two days without explaining the context of that and making it up elsewhere. So um, one of the things I am really passionate uh, about, I have a lot of passion around, is helping to make that transition. Because I made that transition. It was difficult for me. And I want to share my experiences to try to help guide people into making the transition too. I'm a big fan of sharing my experiences and giving back to the world. Uh, the world has done a lot of good for me and I would like to give back to the world. So that's where my passion comes from is to helping these students because I feel like I've got a lot to say, I have a lot of expertise here and, and that I can help. I can help thing, make things a lot easier. I've seen a few people lose jobs because they didn't explain in the right way Shabbos and Yom Tov, and the interviewer or HR felt like they were going to have a HR nightmare on their hands uh, because they presented themselves as this needy religious you know, fanatic that, you know, is always going to give them a problem about Shabbat and Yom Tov. And it's just a misunderstanding about how to communicate the the need there. Um, it, luckily, in corporate America today, you have lots of a wide variety of different backgrounds and cultures and different requirements, whether they're social requirements or dietary requirements. And it's not unusual anymore to have someone that has different requirements than um, than than the hiring manager and the hiring manager is 
goes through training and education for diversity, equity, and inclusion right. to make sure that they accommodate everyone. So it's a lot easier to do today than it was 15 years ago when I did it. But it's still really important to communicate it the right way because you can end up losing a job. You can end up just not getting a job, being eliminated from the candidate pool, or it could prevent you from growing in your career um, uh, as well. So I think it's really important to be able to translate what it means to be religious in your culture in corporate America, to be able to um, protect your investment in your work and your in supporting your family. So, so you're coaching these these people who want to enter the workforce with with what they need, the the confidence they need, the the correct way to present themselves when they are dealing with people outside of the culture. But but you're saying that now nowadays, as opposed to in the past, there's a general openness and there's actually um, enforced <laughs> classes that the, the HR has to take in order to understand the, you know, accommodate for other cultures. So they're really looking to understand their, uh, they're looking to accommodate people from all different cultures. So it's, a, it's an easier environment, but there's still a need for, for people coming from the yeshiva environment into the workforce to present themselves correctly. Let me ask you like this, what, what do you think is the advantage that having a yeshiva education provides for someone who is entering the workforce over as opposed to someone who doesn't have that background? Um, I, I wouldn't describe it as a advantage that a yeshiva person has over somebody else. It's just a different skill set mm-hmm. um, that is just as apl- applicable as someone that did a four-year degree. Someone that did a four-year degree in, in university, of course, went through, you know, classes in basic, you know, English and math and, and, and uh, you know, writing and, and so on. Um, and, and they may have some advantages there. Uh, but someone, in, someone that went through yeshiva that may have not gone through all of those classes and, you know, I'm, I'm assuming also that still has a fundamental understanding of, of uh, English and math, um, has a thought process on how to solve problems and working through a piece of Gemara really, you know, and understanding different points of view of, you know, whether it's Beis Shammai, Beis Hillel, or whether it's, uh, you know, the Ritvor or the Rashbar, right, on different ways to approach a question um, is really important in business and really important in, in just working and surviving in corporate America as well is understanding that someone might have a different opinion and at the end, um, you should get to uh, an end result that works for everybody with the understanding of the framework that you that you work in. And having the ability to work through that and understand that there's an end result that comes to an end is, a, you know, uh, is really important. It's a skill that not a lot of people have. And and I and talking about, I don't know how you know how you would frame that talking in an interview, right? Because uh, no one would have that context. But describing that as analytical um, thought, thought development um, and, and problem solving um, and demonstrating that with real examples is really important. It's, re- it's, it's really beneficial. When, I, when I'm interviewing, I, you know, if, if someone can't give me a concrete example of something that they've done and how they've solved the problem, um, they probably don't have that skill set. So being able to describe that skill set in an interview is really important. Um, getting getting specific, you know, how you solve the problem. And it doesn't have to be a work problem. It can be any problem. 
And so uh, being able to present yourself in that way is, 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 is part of the skill, I think, that someone from yeshiva has that it may be different than someone that went to a four-year college degree, unless you went to law school. Law school pretty much does similar things. So. Uh, nowadays, a lot of yeshivas offer a, a, a Bachelor of Talmudic Law. So coming yeah. to coming to the an interview, is it understood by the corporate world that someone who's coming with a, a BTL bachelor's of Talmudic law has an analytic skills that that put them that sh- you know show a certain level of accomplishment in, ter- in yeah. anal- analyzing problems and solving problems? I actually have that on my resume, uh-huh. uh, and it is my belief. I don't know. If this is a broad belief. It's my belief that no one cares. Uh, in the interview process, nobody cares what kind of degree you have in the business world. If you're a doctor, if you want to be a surgeon, or if you want to be an optician, or if you want to be, uh, you know, a, a lawyer, it matters. It matters that you have a degree. It matters where you went to school. It matters what kind of, uh, you know, expertise that, you know, what kind of education that you have, because that's a very specific skill set that requires a much more detailed level of, um, you know, of, uh, of education, but you have people coming out of school with degrees in mysticism and you have people coming out of schools and degrees in humanities applying for sales jobs. And the degree has nothing to do with the job at all. What people are looking for in during the interview process, in my belief, is that you stuck it out, that you went to school, you're disciplined, you can attend classes, you've got some basic foundation of, of, of education, and that you're not a dummy and that you come into work here, you've, you know, you've been, you've, you've got some, uh, you know, you, you've got some education, you've got some experience there. In most resume, in most job descriptions today, you see the term degree require degree or equivalent work experience required. Mm. And that equivalent work experience required is a way of saying it doesn't really matter if you have a degree or not. What matters is, is that you can do the job. So I'm putting that in there not to eliminate people that don't have a degree mm-hmm. or that the type of degree that you have doesn't matter. So you can have a degree in the humanities and history and apply for a job as a salesperson or, you know, as a product manager. Um, if you can show that you have some equivalent work experience or skill set. So when I look, I, I have that on every single a job application in my team because I don't believe that it really makes that much of a difference if somebody went to college or not. I, I believe that it makes a difference that they have the right experience and skill set to do their job to work on my on my team. Um, it happens to be that I have people on my team that have PhDs. I have people on my team that have four-year college degrees and I have people on my team that don't have a degree. Um, and and some, you know, some have, they, they all have different levels of expertise and they're all equally as valuable. And, and I take that approach when I'm interviewing and when I'm, you know, recommending people to how they, how they build their resumes and how they describe their skill sets in, 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 in the corporate world too. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there, um, a lot of times I, w- I would imagine that somebody coming from a world of yeshiva into the corporate world has, has to face challenges in terms of company events where everybody is socializing together and, Certain laws, kosher, the laws of, of keeping kosher, um, the laws of who can touch, you know, touching unmarried, married, uh, the opposite genders. Uh, this, these kind of things would create problems on a constant basis. 
uh, at least until it's it, until all of your employees, all, all of your um, what's the word I'm looking for, all of your colleagues understand yeah. your your value set. So, um, how do you advise people entering the corporate world to properly convey their own religious needs? And also, uh, a second part of that question is, do you <clears throat> do you try to strengthen them in in sticking to their guns? And, and sticking to what they believe, or do you say you need to compromise? Um, you need to compromise when you yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a. I don't believe that there's a there's one answer to this question. Mm-hmm. I recently had a conversation with a employee of mine that shared an experience that they had in working with an Orthodox person, and um, she went to shake his hand, and he refused to shake her hand, and says, "I don't shake hands with women." And the way he described it to her, she was incredibly offended. And that she felt that he was being incredibly disrespectful and also a little creepy. Why? Do you think that if I shake your hand that you're going to have like some kind of intimate connection with me? I'm just shaking your hand to say hello. And the fact that you would not shake my hand because you would believe that that would create like an intimate connection with me just from a handshake, like that's creepy. And now I don't want to work with you because I'm creeped out by you so that's from the other side right where the whole thing that you're trying to achieve as an orthodox man and not shaking a woman's hand is that distance that you know that you create that you don't touch another woman because you want to create that intimate distance between yourself and that person and keep it only for your wife and you're not supposed to touch another woman it has the complete opposite effect because now that person that you denied shaking hands with feels that you want to have an intimate connection with them oh, and that you're trying not to because you're saying, oh, I only shake hands with women because it's dangerous for me, right, mm-hmm. not to, to shake hands with other women, even though it's nothing to do with intimate touch at all. It's simple, a simple greeting. There are people in Europe, when they greet you, they give you a kiss on, the, on each side of the cheek and it's completely platonic and doesn't mean anything. And if you don't do it, it it's kind of awkward, right? It creates this awkward moment that, you want me to respect your culture, but you're not respecting mine. So that's the other side of the story and how it's perceived or how it could be perceived when an Orthodox man goes into, into that kind of situation. And I think that's the kind of thing that you need to speak to your Rav about, to ask a Shaila uh, to understand that before you go into that situation and find yourself into that, in, in that situation. Just to translate for our listeners, that means that each person um, would have to, would prep, would, preferably have a close relationship with somebody with a, a rabbinical guide who you could ask a, a halachic questions to when, when entering, you know, when understanding that you're going into a, a into an environment where you're going to be challenged in these areas, what is appropriate for you personally, based on your sensitivities, your environments. And okay. Yeah. You have to, you have to understand what your, what your boundaries are, what your gadarim are. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you're asking, you have to understand that when you go into the, the world, you're asking for people to accommodate you and your strange quote unquote ways, right? In how you observe and how you keep your religion. Um, and they would expect you give them the same accommodation, that you would respect their culture and their religion and their, their strange quote unquote ways too. And if you don't, then that you, you run the risk of making a chil Hashem a greater Chil Hashem than what you would achieve by keeping your own boundaries. 
So I think that it's really important. I'm sorry, Jason. Jason, one more time. Yeah. Just, just there's some people who won't not understand these terms. So, okay. so just a desecration of of God's name, which means that when when somebody sees behavior of uh, of an Orthodox Jew, a Jew who keeps the Torah as a negative thing, they associate that with the with the Torah itself and with 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 you know. With, with God, so that's, that's uh, You know, it's interesting. You, it's an excellent point that you bring up. I'm, I'm here talking about how you need to make sure that you're conscious of your audience when you go into corporate America, and I'm talking to you as an Orthodox Jew using all these terms, and I'm not being conscious of your audience. Uh, so I, it's a good reminder to me. Okay, I, I, I have to make sure that I rephrase and, and give a little bit more context. So yes, absolutely, uh, that's correct. Um, there, you you run the risk of when I come in, I wear a yarmulke. Uh, I've always worn a yarmulke. It's been difficult for me. I went through a choice. I went through a decision that I had to make uh, very early on in my career. It was whether I would show up for that interview as a trainer wearing my yarmulke or not. Jason, can you show your yarmulke? Because we get with your hair do in such a way. Oh, there yeah, it is. Okay. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> and I had to decide, you know, in the job, my first job in publishing where I was interviewing myself, should I go in with a yarmulke or not? Mm-hmm. And and I went back and forth. There are people that wear yarmulke work and people that don't. There's no wrong or right way. And I decided, I felt like if I was going to start talking about Shabbat and Yom Tov, and I wasn't wearing a yarmulke, mm-hmm. it would be, it's not consistent. So it forces you, the yarmulke forces you to be consistent. Mm-hmm. And uh, it also you know, is there, the whole reason why wear a yarmulke on your head is to remind you that you are different and that you serve Hashem and you serve God. So it's also a reminder. Now, I, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's been times in my life where it didn't serve as a reminder for me and, you know, I made a mistake. Um, but that's okay. You, know, you can, you know, everybody makes mistakes. But, you know, I think that consistency is key and the way you explain and the way you provide context to your coworkers is also is also key. Um, I'll give you an example, a real world example. This year, um, I'm uh, I'm part of the leadership team at Wiley, and this year a strategic business leadership team meeting was made on Monday and Tuesday, September 25th and 26th, which is Rosh Hashanah this year. And my boss who happens to be a German, um, asked me if I would be able to attend. And he said, I noticed on the calendar that it's a Jewish holiday. Is this a holiday that you can, you know, that you can, uh, that you have to, you know, not work, whatever that means, or, or you can or is work. It like, or is it like Hanukkah where you can come to or work? Or is it like Hanukkah where you can come to work, you know, or, you know, and so on. And, and I said that's one of those holidays that uh, you can't you can't work, and I won't be able to attend. And he said, "Could you explain to me what Rosh Hashanah is, and what Yom Kippur is, and what Sukkot is? Because I'm having to take off all these all this time off work, and I don't have a problem taking off the time. And he doesn't have a problem with me taking off the time. And he just wants to understand the context around why it is." that I can't make an exception. So I explained to him what Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is, and I had to, in layman's terms, explain the difference between, you know, Yom and Tovim, or holidays that are written in the Torah that you can't work on, and 
and holidays like Hanukkah that you can work on. And and um, and this is part of what we were talking about before, how, how 10 years ago, I don't think that I would even be asked to explain what those things are. But now there's a, an understanding that there has to be an accommodation made now that there's, okay, I'm going to make this accommodation, but I want to understand it so that I understand the person I'm working with. Uh, so I explain that to him. And, and you know, I, uh, of course, I'm not going into this meeting on Rosh Hashanah and Yom, and Yom Kippur. But as an Orthodox Jew, it also creates conflict in, internal. You start thinking about, not in this specific instance, but you, when you're faced with these examples, you start getting questions. How important is it that I, you know, that I keep this boundary? I will, this will advance my career if I don't, right? If I, if I compromise here, if I, if I go to this meeting, you know, uh, or if I, you know, go to this event that maybe I shouldn't go to, you know, it might further my career. I'm going to finally get to have time and meet with this, this executive or that executive or that leader or this business partner or this customer, you know, you can insert the scenario here and do I, you know, Am I going to lose business? Am I going to compromise my career if I don't if I don't compromise on my religion or my belief? And those are those are uh, conflicts, internal conflicts that happen all the time. I still get I still have those conflicts today, uh, and I've been working now for you know twenty eight close to thirty years, um, and, and I still have those conflicts today. Part of me was like. I really need to be at that meeting. They're going to make a lot of decisions in that meeting that are going to affect my team. And what happens if I'm not there? Oh. And I have to have the, the faith, the emuna to say, okay, I'll, I'll address them afterwards. There's no like crazy emergency. If something comes up, I'll ask one of my team members who's not Jewish, who doesn't observe the holiday to go there and to represent me and to report back to me. And if there's something I need to address, I'll address it afterwards. And it's having the confidence, going back to the confidence that we talked about earlier, is to let that go and to understand that a lot of times in life, in, in, in our business life, we're, we're asked to compromise. Well, we really don't have to. It's really not that we create this false sense of urgency. Or we create this false um, goal or we create this, you know, because we're scared that we will we'll lose the opportunity. But it comes down to having faith that you'll have that opportunity later and that it won't go away and that you'll be able to address the problem or meet the, meet the person in a different way. Um, and, and, and in most cases, you actually earn more respect when you stick to your beliefs than less respect when you compromise. We had a, a similar interview. We had a, um, somebody named Malia Feivelson is we, we interviewed, may, you may have seen her on LinkedIn, but she uh, she was breaking into the world of radio and her colleagues didn't understand why is she not hugging the men and why is she, what's she doing in the corner or who's she talking to? And eventually she stuck to it and she saw, she, she won their respect and it was, it was an amazing story. Yeah. So that's, what, that's exactly what you're saying. This is the first time in my career where I was traveling for work. Uh, you know, I'm on the executive team and um, my boss, who's a very senior person in the organization, scheduled a team dinner at a kosher restaurant for all the rest of the executive team that don't keep kosher. 
Right. They can also eat kosher if they want to. <laughs> they can also eat kosher. And we went to this restaurant and it was great. We had a wonderful time. Everybody said how great the food was. And uh, it, it, it was amazing to me that I'm now at a point in my, now maybe it's because I am in the position that I'm in, but I've never had that happen to me in my entire career where somebody actually made an accommodation and had the whole team make that accommodation, right? And these are executives all going to the kosher, the kosher restaurant. And, um, you know, when I have my team meetings, uh, for my, you know, my own team. And I had a meeting in Chicago. I took everyone to the kosher restaurant one night and we went to a non-kosher restaurant the other night. And everyone understands that I keep kosher and I'm not going to eat, you know, at the, at this uh, non-kosher restaurant. And, um, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, it's become, in my, my experiences, it's becoming a lot easier and more quote unquote normal to accommodate. But that means, that you know as an orthodox person you can't expect to always have it your way and that you're going to have to understand that you're going to have to make some kind of compromises i had a question i asked the shyla is it better if i'm participating in one of these meetings to take off my yarmulke while sitting in a non-kosher restaurant even if i don't have a plate in front of me should i wear my own is it more of a uh, setting a bad example of somebody would be walking past the restaurant and seeing a guy sit in the steakhouse with a yarmulke on, uh-huh. right? That doesn't understand the context. Is it more of a, uh, you know, uh, Marasai in a, it looks bad, right? Or not, right? Is it, would someone look at me and say, oh, that guy's a Jew and he's eating there. So it must be that I could eat there. That's the concept of, you know, um, I don't know how you would translate Marasayan, but, you know, that it looks... Raising, you know, arousing suspicion. Arousing suspicion, I don't know. you know. <laughs> um, and I was told, you know, because if I took it off, yes. then it would make the rest of the whole team uncomfortable and create potentially more of a desecration of, you know, because people would feel guilty that I was compromising, that I had to take off my holy yarmulke before going into the restaurant, you know. Uh, and I was told that I should keep it on, mm-hmm. but try right. not to sit in the view of the window. Ah, that's a good compromise. <laughs> and try to sit in a place in the corner where my back is to the wall, so mm-hmm. it's not as obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's what I do now when, I, when I'm when i going into a non-kosher restaurant. There are also halakhas that, you know, you just speak to your rabbi or, or your religious, you know, counselor, whoever it is that you, you ask questions to. Uh, what you could eat, you know, in a non-kosher restaurant, how you could eat, you know, I've had uh, meals brought to me uh, in California recently. I went to a meeting and we, the, the company arranged for kosher food to be sent into the, co- to the non-kosher restaurant, double wrap. And they will come to the table and ask permission, you know, show me the, show me the food and in front of everybody and everyone's looking at the food that I'm eating and it's a little uncomfortable and I make a joke about it. And then the food comes out and they're looking at it and like, oh, that looks better than what we're eating. Can I have some of that? <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, kind of a thing. And they, uh, you know, there, there are ways to accommodate it. And most companies will accommodate it. And you shouldn't be afraid to ask. Um, a lot of companies now on there, you know, when you go to a conference will have dietary restrictions and everything from vegan to pescatarian to kosher to halal and you can select kosher, and then they'll try to accommodate you with kosher. Um, I always put in the notes, you know, 
you know, it's not kosher style. And please contact me for, you know, questions around kosher food. Uh, because sometimes you get the kosher style, which is not really kosher, um, as well. So, but, but the, the world in general is becoming much more accommodating, uh, to these kinds of situations, which goes back to our original question about compromise. There are easier ways to compromise and to develop what your boundaries are. And you shouldn't think it's so black and white all the time. And you have to understand that you're asking for accommodations in Shabbos and Yom for not working and asking them to spend more money on kosher food for you, that you also are going to have to compromise on some things. And you have to figure out where those compromises are going to be and what works for you um, and what works for your situation. I'm remembering, as you described this, I'm remembering a um, situation of mine. You know, I, I grew up in a, in a non, uh, non-observant Jewish, Jewish upbringing. And I remember I was at a, actually at a reformed Jewish camp. And there was one guy that, no, nobody, I don't know, I can't explain to you why. He was 16 years old and he decided he wanted to be Orthodox. And he, unfortunately, being young and immature and not understanding the, uh, the sensitivities of those around him, his, his, the staff of the camp felt like he was asking for everything and he wasn't, uh, you know, he was just bothering them and making them accommodate him and accommodate him and he didn't appreciate what they were doing for him. So, you know, it's uh, from that perspective, I, you know, you see, you see that you have to, you have to show your appreciation. If somebody is accommodating you, you have to show your appreciation. You have to, you have to, you know, understand that you're, that, uh, yeah, like you're saying, understand that you have to, you have to give a little, you definitely have to give appreciation. And uh, yeah, very good. Okay. So I'd love to end with a question. I'm, I don't know if you prepared for this question, but since a lot of these, uh, a lot of the viewers are students of the podcast fellowship that are also coming from non-observant homes. And a lot of this conversation might maybe a whole new world to them. Um, what would you, what, what would you want to say to an audience? Let's say you have a hundred, a uh, hundred college students from around the world listening, listening to us talking now. Um, maybe hopefully more someday, <laughs> but, uh, what would you, as, as, as an observant Jew, um, who deals with, with the corporate world, um, just from your own perspective, like what kind of message would you like to give in terms of Jewish identity and Jew and Jewish meaning? I think that there is a, um, there's a general sense that I see, I see it more often than not. Uh, and for the students, I don't have specific data to back this up. Um, but just in my general experience, I see a lot of Jewish students embarrassed about their heritage or embarrassed, or maybe embarrassed is too strong of a word, but they feel the need to keep it quiet. They feel the need to, or not just keep it quiet, but maybe even to hide it. And that there's um, a, a general sense of um, fear that, you know, if they, if they identify themselves as a Jewish person, that it might have negative uh, consequences for them. And I, w- I would say to that group that that's not true. It, it doesn't have negative consequences in my experience. And that um, having some, uh, if, if you take that approach, it, sometimes it can become a self-fulfilling, <clears throat> excuse me, prophecy, where you act that way and then people will treat you that way because you act that way. 
And I'm not saying that you should go in and lead with that. Of course not. Lead with your skill set, right? But don't be embarrassed or shy, right, to be proud of who you are and where you've come from, no matter what level of observance you are. Um, I, I speak to people. I have uh, folks that are on my team that are non-observant, that are observant, that are conservative, that are reform. I have uh, lots of different interesting conversations with folks that who have, uh, you know, self-identified to me that they're Jewish and that they, you know, can't believe that, you know, we'd have to have this strategic meeting on Rosh Hashanah. And as a Jew, what do you think about that kind of a question? And, and this person never goes to synagogue and doesn't keep kosher and doesn't do have any kind of level of observance except for Rosh Hashanah, they do something. And there might just be a dinner, but that's still important to them. And that's how they observe their Judaism. And, and that's really important to them. And and uh, they, they had no problem sharing that with me. And I think that it's important to have the confidence in your heritage, to be proud of who you are, where you came from. We have people that come from a variety of different backgrounds in, in, in America, for sure, all across the world, that work with each other all the time. And uh, the, the country and the place in general is, a, is fostering a culture of uh, acceptance and understanding. Now, in every, in every place, you always have that one jerk that isn't, but that's the, more of the exception today than the rule. And everyone knows who that person is. And everybody can stay away from that person and talk less to that person. Or, you know, you don't have to broadcast and have lots of deep conversations with that person either. But I think that the, what I would share is be proud of who you are. Um, don't be so shy about it. Uh, feel, free to, feel free to express, uh, express that when needed, when appropriate. And um, focus on the value that you can bring to the company that you're working for and your skill set. doesn't matter what you look like or where you come from. It's your skills that matter. And, uh, and I, I think that's probably the most important thing that I would, that would share. That was an on-the-spot answer. I don't know. <laughs> if I had more time, I probably would think about it a little bit more, but... Okay, you're welcome to think about it more and then send me your thoughts and I'll let it continue. Very good. Okay, Jason, thank you so much for your time. It's really, it's valuable and we appreciate it. And thank you for sharing your experience and your wisdom. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm, I'm happy to have enjoyed the conversation. And, uh, you know, if, if you are a student or if you are entering in corporate America and love to chat with me, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn and send me, send me a note on LinkedIn. Okay. Very good. Thank you, All Jason. Right. Thank you. You've just listened to another great episode of Our Tribe, the podcast, brought to you by the Podcast Fellowship and hosted by Rabbi Tovia Kopstein. Tune in each week, every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time to hear more great episodes of Our Tribe, the podcast. If you have any suggestions or questions, email us at ourtribe at podcastfellowship.org. And don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to help the tribe thrive.